You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season 11, episode six. I was longing for something more, longing for the transcendent and, you know, gosh, to spend my life in liturgy in a sacramental worldview and, you know, offering up this liturgy and praise and worship to God was, you know, I think maybe in the music world, that was maybe what I was longing for, but was just a shadow of the vocation now. Father Christopher Foley is the priest at Holy Cross Orthodox Church in Kernersville, North Carolina, where he has been serving for 17 years. Father Christopher is a convert to the Orthodox faith from an evangelical background. While studying missiology and art history in college, he became interested in Eastern Orthodoxy and went on to receive a Master of Divinity degree at St. Vladimir's Orthodox Theological Seminary in New York. In addition to his duties as a parish priest, Father Christopher has been active in writing and recording music with his band Luxury for over 30 years. The documentary Parallel Love tells the story of the band and how three of its members each became Orthodox priests. In this episode, Father Christopher and I discuss art in sacred context, the tension between embracing tradition and the artist's aversion to being labeled. We talk about what it means to be haunted by Eden and how the longing for transcendence stays with us even for those who have deconstructed their faith. Patrons of the podcast can enjoy an additional interview segment on idols and icons. This is my conversation with Father Christopher Foley. Father Christopher, thank you so much for joining me today on the Makers and Mystics podcast. It's great to be here. For our listeners, this is also one of the rare and beautiful occasions where I get to sit across from a table, look my guest in the eye at my own home here in Greensboro. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I want to start here. You're an Orthodox priest, but you're also what I would call a rock and roll star. (laughs) (laughs) And so the question for me would be, uh, which came first, the chicken or the egg, the priesthood or the rock and roll? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, You know, if we're talking timeline, it would certainly be the rock and roll stuff. I've been playing in bands since high school, playing punk rock bands in Atlanta. And, you know, eventually went off to college, met the guys that I've been playing with now for 30 years. But eventually went off to seminary. I've been a priest now for 17 years, but still writing and recording with these same guys. And the band is Luxury. Mm Mm-hmm. Three of you in the band went on to become priests. Is that right? (laughs) Yeah, it's true. I mean, if somebody could have told us... 30 years ago, we were playing sweaty clubs, <laughs> dungeon nightclubs, yes. Yeah, that we would be, you know, three of us would be Orthodox priests someday. I mean, first of all, we wouldn't even know what that meant. Yeah. <laughs> and we would not be able to envision ourselves there. But yeah, so I met these guys in college. We went to a, a small private Christian liberal arts school in Northeast Georgia where, you know, anybody that was remotely into music or art, you know, you found each other. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we started playing. This was in the early 90s and, uh, you know, wound up kind of getting a, a regional following. Eventually, we're signed to a Christian label called Tooth and Nail Records and, um, you know, kind of did the touring circuit for a number of years. Then we started having kids and, oh, yeah. 
you know, uh, I'm sure we'll talk about this some later, but eventually <laughs> found the Eastern Orthodox <laughs> Church, uh, which then kind of turned our world upside down. Yeah. And then I eventually went off to, to seminary, got ordained. Two others in the band wound up going to seminary. Then probably about seven years ago, maybe, something like that, uh, this longtime fan who was a filmmaker who eventually started playing guitar with us some um, just wanted to do a documentary because we were getting back together to write and record our fifth record the first time since we'd all been priests, the three of us. So he started you know, bringing this camera around and he started, he'd launched a <laughs> Kickstarter or GoFundMe or something. And eventually, you know, this movie was made telling the story of rock and roll and friendship and we were in a bad car accident when we were mm. on tour and kind of so it talks about that and then how three of us became priests and yeah so it got all this press you know it won some awards at film festivals and so over the last three to four years it was just all this interest in the band which wow. we would have killed for back in the day yeah <laughs> and uh but now i don't know it's just interesting to be yeah. talking about all of that it is very interesting. I'd be curious to know also how those two worlds intersect. And like, would you say that those days as a touring musician still have some bearing on the way that you see the world now as a priest? You know, certainly part of my journey into the Orthodox faith growing up in, I don't know, kind of a non-denominational kind of 80s and 90s church experience you know, I was really longing for for something more. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of the praise and worship culture and the the youth group culture, like it just never, it just didn't do much for me. Sure, uh, my my beef was not so much with with God or faith, but you know, where is a place where God is truly worshipped and with awe and reverence and you know, kind of a, a deep a deep faith that's not going to just change with the shifting sands of the new thing. And so that, you know, that eventually led myself and about 35 other people. We kind of made this journey together. Um, but it was around the time that we were touring quite a bit. And so I was also struggling with, you know, what does it mean to be an artist who has faith, who believes in Christ, but doesn't necessarily feel called to be a I don't know, like a worship leader or, right, right. you know, we just, ne- that was never our, our thing. So the more that we learned about Eastern Orthodox kind of theology and practice and, you know, how even the early church understood these uh, dichotomies or lack of dichotomies actually between like kind of the sacred and secular just really resonated, mm-hmm. um, which I could go into more. But I, I think during that time, it just, it answered a lot of the the questions mm-hmm. that I was struggling with. Yeah. So in that sense, like, you know, eventually then becoming a priest and going to seminary, I, I think it was really, I was longing for something more, longing for the transcendent mm. and, you know, gosh, to spend my life in liturgy in a sacramental worldview and, you know, offering up this liturgy and praise and worship to God was, you know, I think maybe... In the music world, that was maybe what I was longing for, but was just a shadow of, you know, maybe kind of the vocation now.
Well, you know, I find in my own life that these deeper yearnings in a creative sense and in a spiritual sense, they seem to be very much in communication. They seem to be very much coming from the same fountain. But sometimes that creates a tension and sometimes it creates a union, if, if that makes sense. And so it's almost like for me, your story of going from luxury, this rock and roll expression of just getting out this energy, and right. then you look at this more reverent mm -hmm. posture, perhaps, of liturgy, somehow I see the same urge at the root of yeah. both of those expressions. Yeah, no, I, I like how you articulated that, because, you know, for me as an Orthodox priest, you know, we, we, do, we worship liturgically, and we speak of the sacraments, uh, so we can even use this term like a sacramental worldview. So a sacramental worldview would be, you know, because of the incarnation, you know, God took on matter. You know, God became flesh and dwelt among us. So now matter matters. Yes. <laughs> so part of, we would call it kind of the universal vocation of the priesthood of all of us mm -hmm. is to take matter, this material world, shape it, offer it up to God with gratitude and thanksgiving. Eucharist, that's the Greek word for yes. thanksgiving. We offer it up. And then we ask God to come down and bless it, and then it gets returned to us as something life-giving. Mm -hmm. So in a way, the liturgy for us becomes microcosm of a whole vision of our whole life. So for the artist, it would be taking matter and talent and pianos and <laughs> guitars or paintbrushes or whatever and we offer it up yes. kind of liturgically in that same reverent way like thank you lord for for this i want to offer this up somehow and you know that can mean different things for different people and artists and and then i think somehow god blesses that and returns it back to us i mean i'm sure all artists have had that experience where well, I don't really know where this song came from, <laughs> <laughs> right? You know, um, and so you know, even our Eucharistic elements of bread and wine that we offer up at the liturgy, you know, it's not just wheat and grapes; <laughs> mm -hmm. it's bread and wine. A man's hands had to get involved in that process. Mm -hmm. Not to mention Christ at the on Holy Thursday, you know, instituting this that this is my body and this is my blood, and we, we offer that up. That is like our whole liturgical life, is to offer those elements up that then get returned to us as, as Christ himself. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think as an artist, that's such an important, at least for me, as I'm standing at the altar and offering up these gifts, it's no different than me being out in the world or, you know, someone at their job or you know, kind of offering up the totality of their whole life, whatever that might be, the good and the bad. Mm -hmm. Oh, to be thoughtful and reverent and thankful and offer worship and praise up to God mm -hmm. and like refer it to God mm -hmm. in that transcendent way. Yeah. What you're saying makes me think of this. I've often said that all art is incarnational. Oh, that's great. And there is this intersection point that I recognize you know, where the word became flesh and dwelled among mm -hmm. us, right? And right. so there's this idea of the immaterial becoming material. Mm -hmm. And yep. we often get this idea that 
spirit is removed from body or that the body is unholy and that the spirit is holy. And that's more of a Gnostic idea it is, and than that was a Christian rejected idea. as heresy in the early church. That yes. we are not just soul, nor are we just body. Yes. Yeah. And I think that that idea, even though it might not be named as a Gnostic idea these days, or it might not be addressed, mm-hmm. I think that still pervades many faith communities, right. or at least we we live that belief out in the way that, in our actions. Right. And so for me, it's almost like when I think about the incarnation, it was a blessing of the senses, you know, the, and I love scriptures like taste and see, see or like, you know, right. hear, O Israel, or what's another. And like when Thomas reached his finger and touched, you know, it's like all of the senses were in a sense Yeah, there's a passage, blessed. I think in First John or something that says like, you know, these things that we have touched, these things that we have heard, yes. these things that we have <laughs> seen with our eyes, yeah. you know, like in my catechism class, I read that. And I think there's 11 different sensory Mm-hmm. words in that passage. Yeah. You yeah. Know, this is what we are bearing witness to. Yes. Yeah. I think of so many examples throughout history where the arts really facilitated a divine encounter. Mm-hmm. And maybe you could speak into this some, but when I've researched the relationship between churches historically and the arts historically, it's such a wild and variegated experience with some moments of renaissance and moments of connection, divine human connection, and then other moments where I think we just completely missed it all together, mm-hmm. you know, but I'm thinking of different moments in history. Henry Nouwen is, is a story that I often talk about when he just got transfixed by Rembrandt's mm-hmm. Return of the Prodigal, the Prodigal Son, Son, and it yeah. changed the whole course of his life, ended up writing books about it. And then I was reading recently in Augustine's Confessions, and he was wrestling with music and, and he was wrestling with the beauty as even as you were talking about beauty earlier, he was wrestling with it because he knew that somehow the beauty of the melody was leading him to experience the transcendent, exp- leading him to experience God. But he also feared the power of that beauty and the power of that melody because he thought, what if I end up more enthralled with the melody than the one right. the melody is meant to lead me to. Right. And I think that point is where a lot of people either turn away and, and feel like, well, there's no place for my art in the community right. of faith, or then it becomes that secondary notion, like you were saying earlier, well, the, the music and the arts just got to serve my evangelical mission here. And, and so then the art suffers. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, art... <laughs> Good art or good, you know, I, I hate to use the term Christian art, <laughs> but, you know, it should be transcendent and it should be transparent mm. rather than opaque. Mm-hmm. So if it's transparent, then we, we see God through it. Mm-hmm. If it's opaque, then it's like, you know, we start worshiping the, the art itself. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think it's not that the art maybe is the problem, it's maybe what we bring to it. Yes. Because, you know, I, I think as someone who believes in God, I mean, you know, I can listen to any form of music and I can somehow find God in it. I mean, even in maybe the most blasphemous <laughs> song, you can, like, especially as a as a pastor, as a priest, like, okay, you know, I'm getting this real insight in, you know, 
to this artist and and kind of you know what has happened in their life to produce this even blasphemous <laughs> you know we're kind of always looking for kind of that angle but I, yeah. I think good art you know should be transparent and so where the artist needs to kind of get out of the way yeah yeah um, and you know in some ways with church art we might have a distinction between sacred art and secular art in terms of like at least in our orthodox tradition tradition of like what we allow in the service so sure. we do have sacred contextual chant, and we do have architecture we have things that are built a certain way we have icons that are painted a certain way it's like we need that sacred space so that we can then realize everything else is sacred yeah and if we didn't have the sacred space then we wouldn't have any sense of the numinous with kind of the secular art. Sure, sure. So uh, Jonathan Peugeot talks about this idea of narthex art. I love how he talks about that. <laughs> yeah. That here is the art that, you know, it's not so much what we would use liturgically, but it's somehow in this like in-between place. Yes. Um, and that really resonates with me. Sure. Um, that there's a way in which art can be, continue to be transcendent, even if it's not something we're using Yes. You know, liturgically. Or, exactly. Yeah, I find um, that that context is important when we're speaking about art because yeah. to say, you know, narthex art, I think it's a funny term, you know, <laughs> but to talk about that, to me, it still leaves room for dignity for that art. Right. It still leaves room for that art to contain in and of itself a transcendent experience or to contain something spiritual in its essence, but perhaps it's not for that particular context. Mm -hmm. Well, talk to me about the idea of imminence. It seems like, you know, this whole season on the podcast, we're talking about art and the urge for transcendence, but the flip side of that coin is incarnation. It's imminence. It's, it's not just the expansiveness of what is beyond, but especially in the Christian tradition, it would be the expansiveness of the beyond came down into flesh, into the material world, and dwelt among yeah. us. So, yeah, it's it's going to be. It means that it's there's going to be a struggle because mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean we are imperfect people trying to kind of make our way mm -hmm. as we create art, and you know I, I think some of the best art is it's honest mm -hmm. and it's true. I mean, so you read like a Flannery O'Connor short story, and it's like <laughs> this is rough around the edges. Yeah. But and this, at the core, <laughs> yeah, and but it's real, yes, you know. I mean, it's just it's it's powerful that way rather than just kind of an idealized form. So, I'm just trying to think of another example like, um, one of my favorite songwriters, Sufjan Stevens, mm -hmm. we were talking about earlier. Probably one of my favorite songs he's ever written is such a tough song to listen to, but it's John Wayne Gacy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and like, you know, it's this awful song about this person that did these awful things. Right. And he's leading you in that song through like, oh, this guy's childhood and man, the things he did to all of these boys. And, and then at the end, you know, he's like, but look beneath the floorboards to the secrets that I have hid. And yeah. then it's just like, oh my gosh. You know, I feel like good art does that. Mm -hmm. It's not a sing-song chorus about Jesus or, <laughs> but it, it hits you on that deep level. Yes. Like, whoa. So I just feel like good art, incarnational art, 
in that sense is going to kind of get down to that like real stuff. Yeah. And that's not always going to look pretty. It's not always going to be the thing that you play on a Sunday morning, yeah. <laughs> you know, in church or, uh, yeah. So I, you know, I think some of the best art yeah, incarnationally does that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, it just, it hits you in the gut. Yes. <laughs> and you have to react to it. Yes. Well, I love what you're saying, even about Sufjan's lyrics. It takes a story, a very dark story of a very dark situation, but then it utilizes that as a springboard to see the darkness in our own heart, you know? And I think that good art has the capability of doing that. It allows us to see, much like an icon in some ways, to see through it, but also to see ourselves reflected back to us. And I think that's something that we can sometimes miss because of the parameters we put on art that... See, there's there's a difference in my mind about when you talked about context earlier. There's a difference between context and then restrictions, Mm -hmm. you know. And I think good art reflects back to us things that maybe we don't even want to see about ourselves. Yeah, you know. Well, because art can be provocative, Mm -hmm. and I mean, in some ways, like it should be, Mm -hmm. because art should ask those hard questions that maybe we're not comfortable either asking or answering or. You know, sometimes art isn't meant to give the answer, mm-hmm. but to just give a reflection on something. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so it's like, I think good art, uh, good movies, for instance, some, some of my favorite movies are ones that like don't spell out everything for you. Mm-hmm. You have to do the work yes. or a good novel. Like you have to do the work to, to enter into it. It's not just given to you on a, a little plate. Like, here you go. Here's the wrap up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, some might see that religion tends to answer all the questions, whereas art is okay with the mystery mm-hmm. or art is okay with ambiguity. But I, but from what I know about the Orthodox, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, there's also a large place for mystery yeah. within the Orthodox faith. Talk to me some about that relationship between how religion would handle some of the mysteries of life as opposed mm-hmm. to how art handles the mystery and the ambiguity. Do you see a, a similarity there? Or yeah, what I mean, I, I'd have to kind of like think about that systematically. <laughs> I mean, the one thing that, you know, Eastern Orthodoxy, it, it frustrates a Westerner mm-hmm. because we have, you know, I'm a product of the West. We're used to having all of these categories and we can like spell everything out and everything is figured out and here's all the answers. Whereas, you know, orthodoxy grew up in kind of the Greek speaking East, not the Latin speaking West. And so kind of in a more of an Eastern, it's kind of an Eastern religion in that sense, Mm -hmm. you know, it's from the Middle East. And so there's the Eastern mind is much more content with mystery Mm -hmm. and holding certain things in tension, Mm -hmm. maybe speaking about things on different registers and allowing those registers to, you know, we can talk about prayer on these different levels. And all are valid forms of prayer, but they might not be, you kind of hold certain things in tension. It's kind of the same way, I, I think, with how the church handles things. I mean, our, our dogma, we're very clear. I mean, we do have a set kind of dogma box, so to speak. <laughs> you know, and we're talking about the seven ecumenical councils and the, the stork creeds and things like that. But, you know, we where God did not put a period 
you know, there's just certain things that we, you know, we just have to prayerfully enter into the mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in the East, you have kind of a theology, which we call, um, you know, there's cataphatic mm-hmm. theology, which is saying something positive about God. And then there's the other theology, which is like, we know more about God about what we don't know. Right. Is that apophatic? Yeah, so apophatic theology. So, you know, we could say God is love, da-da-da-da-da, but we could also say, well, because we don't even know what love truly is, mm. <laughs> how can we even say God is love? Because our own concept of, of, of love <laughs> mm-hmm. probably falls short. And so we understand more about God sometimes by saying what he isn't, mm-hmm. like he's ineffable, mm-hmm. he's inconceivable, <laughs> he's incomprehensible. Well, those are saying negative things about God, but that helps us understand more about kind of the mystery. Yeah. And I, I think that you mentioned Flannery O'Connor. I think her art does the same thing. It's all, and maybe John Wayne Gacy as yeah. well. It it gets at a truth by approaching it through the door of the negative or the opposite. Yeah, or yeah. it's almost like by by exposing what is not love. It awakens our own yearning for what is love, you know, yeah, and I, I yeah. think that's a and like what are the ways I'm so quick to judge a John Wayne Gacy? Oh, he's one of these awful people, but like we just had the Sunday of the publican and the Pharisee where we hear that reading about. Thank God I'm not like John Wayne Gacy, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, but as soon as we say that, we realize, yeah. well, you know, yeah, I'm certainly doing things that I'm ashamed of, and right. I'm struggling in my yeah my life and, yeah you know um so i think yeah good art does kind of provoke mm-hmm. and get us like my other favorite line is from a david bazan song called the poison mm. which he is you know talking all about you know the whole song is somebody has just taken some medicine to kill themselves mm. <laughs> and so he's talking about his marriage that's falling apart and then oh, what's the last line in the song um my old man always swore that hell would have no flames, just a front row seat to see your true love pack her things and drive away. Wow. And that's how the song ends. And you're just like, oh my gosh. Yeah. You know, just heavy. And, you know, yeah. it just it gets you thinking on these yes. kind of in the, like a Flair Connor yes. style, like, okay. Well, I think that's something that's always been important to me is recognizing that as believers creating art, it's not only okay, but it's encouraged for us to explore the full range of human experience and for us to explore the full range of human emotion, whether that is something beautiful and exultant like liturgical music or worship or something like that, or whether it is one of these darker folk songs that deals with, Mm -hmm. you know, the brokenness of the human experience. And I think that's something that, is vitally important to me as an artist who identifies as an artist of faith. You know, it, it's it's recognizing that that incarnational aspect of it is really what enables us to experience mm-hmm. the transcendent right. in some ways. You know, if 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 we're limiting our art to this one narrow form or expression, mm-hmm. then we're also limiting the return on investment, so to speak. Right, right. <laughs> well, I always think of it in terms of like concentric circles or something because, yeah, yeah. you know, I was talking earlier about kind of the sacred space and sacred art. So like in our tradition, we have, 
you know, liturgical chant, mm-hmm. you know, that is like passed, been passed on through the, through the centuries and this liturgical poetry that is just so, so much depth. And so that's where like form and function come together in this perfect, mm-hmm. like medium, Yes, you know, and, you know, to enter into the worship of the church through, you know, text, mm-hmm. because it's, it's all acapella. Mm-hmm. It's like the word is primary. And like we are entering into the reality of what we're singing about right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then, you know, concentric circles. So we talked about the kind of the narthex art. Then there's, you know, music that I think maybe kind of like, yeah, the folk music tradition that reflects then on mm-hmm. that experience of life in the church and of faith. And, you know, maybe at least from my perspective, maybe praise and worship music sure. would be some of that. Mm-hmm. And then other concentric circles, you know, where people of faith writing about, you know, life and experience and heartbreak mm-hmm. and disappointment and, you know, finding meaning and suffering or, or whatever. Um, but it's no less Christian in the sense. It's coming from a deep place of faith. And then maybe the other concentric circles would be music maybe written by people who have no sense of faith but mm-hmm. are attempting <laughs> To find the transcendent, yeah, whether they realize it or not, yes. Um, so that kind of helps me in my mind, kind of think about these different, yeah, kind of ways of expression. Yeah, even think about the parables of Jesus. There's this storytelling aspect. He's telling a story that's leading the the listener outside of themselves into the experience of another person mm-hmm. or another person's experience. But then from that, it leads you back to your own experience. And that's kind of that, that circular thing in a, in a different way of looking at it. But it's almost like art and storytelling has the ability to take us outside of ourselves. And my friend, Mary McCampbell, she was on Makers and Mystics a few seasons ago, and we were talking about her book, Imagining Our Neighbors as Ourselves, How Art Shapes Empathy. Hmm. And it's just this idea of how the arts enable us to experience the world from another person's point of view. Hmm. And I think for me, that leans into that transcendent as well as that incarnational side of things. Yeah, Well, I wanna ask you a personal question now. Okay. What are you wrestling with right now, theologically or in your own- Oh my gosh. (laughs) In your own- Journey of faith. Where where are you? Where's the precipice that you're leaning over into the void? I I think right now. I mean, the theme has been um, wrestling with the whole deconstruction mm-hmm. issue. You know, because that's kind of like the the big buzzword now, yeah. and there's a lot of podcasts and all kinds <laughs> of things that are talking about that. And just you know, what's going on, kind of within my heart when I hear people tell their story of deconstruction. And a lot of times it's such a painful story to hear, but the desire to want to somehow offer hope yeah. to folks that are in the midst of that, mm-hmm. rather than just like, oh, I can't believe you're deconstructing. Why would you, <laughs> you know, but just to really listen. And there's a great book that I've just finished reading by Joshua Porter okay. called Death to Deconstruction reclaiming faithfulness as an act of rebellion. Oh, 
<laughs> I love the subtitle. You, you sold me at the subtitle. <laughs> um, he he uh, sang for a band called Showbread that was also on Tooth and Nail. Okay, that, that Luxury was on. He is now a pastor up in the Northwest, but has written. So did book. all the Tooth and Nail artists just become priests and pastors? <laughs> <laughs> very few, actually. That's uh, right. A th- different podcast there, right? Yeah, yeah. Very few. Um, but you know, it, it's a great book, and the way he just pastorally deals with with the subject and. You know, God has just kind of been opening up another door of ministry that I never expected. And some of it has to do with like the success of the movie and all of that, that all these musicians kind of like, I'm either finding them or they're finding me or kind of through friends and just having a lot of really good discussions Mm -hmm. with uh, a lot of musicians who are kind of at that precipice. Yeah. Either I'm deconstructing or I'm just completely going to just leave faith altogether or, gosh, if I'm walking away from what I've always known, like, what else is there? So, I don't know. That's just kind of like, yeah. uh, maybe I'm not articulating it very clear, but that's just kind of what, what's in my heart right now. For like, sure. How can I be a voice of just hope Yeah. to those who are struggling at that yeah. threshold? Absolutely. No. I in think the narthex. In so the narthex. Speak. That's right. <laughs> I think that's beautiful. And, you know, there's so many people in that space right now and so many people asking questions that need to be asked and so many people really wondering what does faith look like from here in their own personal experience. And I know a lot of folks and probably even a lot of the listeners that keep up with Makers and Mystics, it's a bit of a, a spiritual displacement it feels like we don't know where we belong anymore you know it's it's this space between things and in some ways that's forming its own community Uh, but in other ways it's uh it's a bit of a lonely adventure and you don't know where you belong or where you fit right and our culture around us is choosing these like camps exactly right and like if you're not in a camp yeah and for the, for me as an artist, for me as an artist, I can't I can't do that. I struggle I with that. You know, know. it's I, I struggle with labels in general. Right? It's like you know, I have no qualms about telling you that I am a follower of Jesus, or that I'm a uh, on my best days I'm aspiring to be a follower of Jesus. But at the same time, sometimes I even struggle with the label of Christian because I'm like. Well, I don't even know what you mean by that. Right. And I know that the moment that I answer that in the affirmative, I have stepped into a box that I may not even want to be in. Right. And I think a lot of people feel those things, especially in the creative artistic world. Mm-hmm. It's like the box thing or the you know these camps as you're yeah. talking about. And it seems like culturally more and more yeah, artists don't it's, want it's, to be labeled and no. put in a box. Right. That's like, right. you know, it's <laughs> like the antithesis of, of what we yeah. like. Yes, you know. But that's interesting. And I'd, I'd be curious to know, uh, even for you as a as a priest, you found peace that's with your That's definitely tradition. a camp, I mean, yeah. that I've chosen to. Right. Yeah. But you found peace there. I have. I have. And uh, it's that... Um, I don't know, you know, people talk about like seeker sensitive worship and all the, you know, whatever that, that's been out there. It's like, well, you know, for me, like to find something that where my f- heart has found a home, it has been so helpful for me to go back uh-huh. and enter into a tradition that already existed long before me. 
is not just, you know, North American Christianity, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, there is something, it's like a stream to step into, mm-hmm. to be shaped and formed by something. And there's incredible freedom in that kind of submission that I'm choosing to submit to. Mm-hmm. And then I can be shaped and formed within that. And, oh, that has been just such a breath of fresh air. Yes. Because up until that point, I just felt like it was up to me to figure it all out. Yes. And I was just not clever enough or well-read enough or, you know. And so there's something about it. It almost sounds counterintuitive, but to actually su- submit to a tradition has brought total freedom. Yes, um, yeah. Not checking my brain at the door either. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, I'm, I'm choosing to submit to yes. kind of this historic, creedal, ancient mm-hmm. church and tradition. But then if I struggle with something in it, maybe I need to struggle with it mm-hmm. and not try to fix it. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of our North American kind of individualistic centered church experience is like, if I don't like something... I'm just going to go and leave and start my own thing down the street. Right. And so we never get a chance to like, oh, what about the stability of place? There's this old monastic ideal of, you know, stability of place. And so if I'm struggling with people and in these relationships in a particular community, like it's good for me to stay there. Wow. And like work on these relationships and not just be like, oh, well, this is stupid. I'm out of here. Yeah. Um, Wow, that's you know. that's so beautiful. Yeah, and, and I love that idea. You know, recently on our artist roundtable, I was talking to my friends about limitation and the role that limitation has in design mm-hmm. and even in covenant relationships. There are there are limitations and structures that create design. It's not meant to inhibit right. the fullness of experience, but right. it actually, even if it seems counterintuitive. It actually facilitates peace and the experience of fullness and wholeness. I love, I love what you're yeah. saying. How even in your submitting to this tradition, it gives you the sense of place that allows expansiveness. And mm-hmm. one other thing I wanted to get you to speak into is we're coming to a close here. Is as we're talking about deconstruction and people who are leaving a sense of place and leaving a sense of identifying with a particular faith or or tradition, even for those who have deconstructed their faith, even for those who have left behind any identification with orthodoxy or traditional Christian terms or spiritual terms, you can't deconstruct the urge for transcendence that is inside right. the human heart. You can't. Uh, I totally believe that. You can't deconstruct. You can't get rid of that yearning for transcendence. And so, part of my motivation in even talking about this on the podcast is looking at that square in the eye and saying, you know, the urge for transcendence is a human phenomenon that's baked into the design of who we are as as a people, as a creature. Mm-hmm. You know. What would you offer, you know, for those that have deconstructed, but yet we still have these yearnings for transcendence because we're gonna we're gonna go somewhere to find that, you know? Yeah, so I think, you know, pastorally, you know, as a priest, I deal with people, you know, that have 
deconstructed or, you know, are struggling with these questions. And it's been my observation that, you know, folks, when they deconstruct and they don't reconstruct, you know, they don't really become atheists. You know, they become, they just replace, you know, the God that they don't like with a different God and, and try to fill you know, I think that void or that desire for that transcendence, you know, they're still seeking it and hoping they find it and are looking for it elsewhere. You know, so in some ways, you know, when they start to talk about the God that they are deconstructing from, I mean, many times I don't feel like I believe in that God either. But, you know, I think it is, you know, ultimately man's search for meaning. And I think art provides a way of, transcendence or seeking out that longing we have within us. And, you know, it is my hope that, you know, people do find it eventually. But as a priest, you know, I, I, I try to work with people and I'm trying to point them back to Christ and back to the kingdom. And, you know, this quote that I often come back to, it's from Simone Veal. It, it's quoted in Father Alexander Schmemann's book, For the Life of the World. But you know, she says that, you know, though a person, you know, runs away from Christ, if they're running towards what they consider to be this desire for truth, they're in fact running straight into the arms of Christ. And so it's like, oh man, that just, I, I think that can be an encouraging thing, particularly for those who maybe are concerned for loved ones that are deconstructing and we don't want to see them walk away from, from this faith that we hold so dear. But, you know, I think this idea of this longing for transcendence, you know, in our tradition, in our Orthodox tradition, the Sunday before Lent, we commemorate the expulsion of Adam and Eve from paradise. And it's very stark. I mean, all of the hymns are talking about Adam and Eve are standing outside the gates, weeping, longing to return to paradise. And and so our whole journey of great Lent, in a sense, is this journey back from I don't know, the pig pen of the prodigal son, back to the house of the father. It's the journey from of Adam and Eve back into the gates of paradise. And, you know, there's this way that like paradise is, is haunting us, pulling us back. I even heard somebody say recently that kind of the the job of, of Christians, and I would say maybe as a, an artist who is a Christian, is, you know, to expand the borders of paradise, and so when we think of then Easter or Pascha, as we call it in our Orthodox tradition, it's this Christ entering into Hades, smashing those gates, bringing the kingdom even there. And so the gates of hell become, in turn, the gates of paradise. Thy, thy tomb, O Christ, is the fountain of thy resurrection, is what we say and so I think the, this nostalgia that we all have, this, this longing for something bigger than us, I think ultimately is a longing for the kingdom, is a longing for paradise, and it is within each one of us. And so I think really the task of the artist who is of faith is to somehow enter into that paradise and, and expand those borders of paradise. So... When someone says they're deconstructing, I mean, in some ways, I feel like maybe that's a, a hopeful thing because I feel like it can be. But I think as long as they are continuing to be on that journey towards truth. It's like we're all haunted by Eden. Yeah, haunted by Eden. I love that. Yeah. <laughs>
Well, Father Christopher, thank you so much for joining me today on the Makers and Mystics podcast. This has been an incredible conversation. Oh, it's so great to be here. It's, a, it's an honor, really. I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. Be sure to leave us a kind review on Apple Podcasts and give us a follow on Instagram at Makers and Mystics. You can see the show notes of this episode for links to the resources mentioned in this conversation. We'll see you again next week. And until then, keep creating. The world needs your art. When you close your eyes to you.